0: He is risen. He is risen Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today, from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 17 through the first part of verse 20. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We're going to stop right there just for a second. All right. We're an interactive bunch sometimes as a church, so we have to do a poll. Futile or futile? (laughs) Futile, raise your hand. Okay, those who are correct with futile, raise your hands. I'm just kidding. All right, participation. Thanks, Tim. Tim doesn't care. But do you understand the point? If Christ has not been raised, believing in Jesus is futile futile, worthless, ridiculous, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. Father God, may you honor the reading of your words today with hearing, with understanding. Lord, with devotion and allegiance, may the work of your Holy Spirit be active in the hearts and the minds of each of us gathered here in this room, in this moment Lord, those who are watching online now or at a later date, already determined by you, I pray that their minds and hearts will be open to you as well. Lord, I pray that we will avail ourselves to what you have to tell us today. Lord, specifically for those who disbelieve, I pray for their disbelief to be confronted, to be challenged, for their arguments to crumble. Lord, for those who doubt, Lord, you are merciful to those who doubt. Lord, I pray for facts that will strengthen their hearts. Lord, I pray for truth that will inform our minds. Lord, for those of us today who are discouraged, oh, because life is not easy. The new cycle continues to devolve into absolute insanity. Economic turmoil, social unrest, just the simple difficulty of living with other flesh and blood people in the home or next door or across the street. Lord, for those of us who are discouraged, I pray for a very special work from your Holy Spirit to bring hope, to infuse life to renew, to restore, to energize, to empower. Change the mind from darkness to light. Change the heart from discouraged to hopeful. Then, Lord, for those of us who are devoted, Lord, I pray for an extra measure of faith, boldness, excitement, assurance, Renewed energy for living out and enjoying every day this relationship with you because you are not only alive, you are Lord on high. Father God, I ask that my words do not get in the way of your word once again today, but that Jesus be lifted up And then as we look to him, we will find light, life, and love. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, oh Father God. The name of Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, your Son. Amen. Would you please be seated? And I want to give a very special welcome to those who are joining with us online today. We're so glad you're a part of the Oak Park family. A very special hello to Megan and Jameson and Kaya and other family members who may be joining with them to watch us in Bend, Oregon today. We love you guys. We miss you. We'll see you when you get back. But anyway, welcome uh, viewers in Bend, Oregon. Just give some shout out. Hello. There you go. Remember, those others who are watching online, we're so glad you're a part of the Oak Park family as well. We would love to hear from you. Remember, you can text in and interact with us during the service. Text in to 805-481-7092. Comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests. And if you're a first-time texter, we would love to get your name so we know how to pray for you and can better be guiding you as you seek uh, to grow in spiritual uh, strength. God obviously has a sense of humor, doesn't he? If you doubt God has a sense of humor, look in the mirror. If you still doubt, look right beside you. And if you still doubt, look up here. This may be God's greatest joke played on you in your life. Hey there, yeah, thanks. I love that kind of support. I am a first-generation Christian. My, My mom and my dad were not Christians. I am a kid who grew up in a trailer park down by the river in Pasco, Washington. I have a speech impediment. I stutter. I'm the first person in my family to go to college and to graduate, and that's solely by the grace of God. Terrified of public speaking, a natural introvert. Me being a preacher, a proclaimer before people of God's word and God's truth is a giant joke. That's why I have a face for radio, not the internet, especially with bright lights that glare off of a bald head. But I refuse to wear makeup even though that's in vogue nowadays. We will rebel against that cultural depravity but God has a sense of humor you may not always see you may not always understand but God has a sense of humor and here's one of the greatest responses the greatest ways God has demonstrated his humor he answered all of the great philosophical questions in life very clearly the great philosophical questions like is there a God in the first place What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Why is there suffering and evil and bad things? You see, those are the the existential questions. Those are the philosophical questions that mankind has asked from the beginning of time. And God has answered every philosophical question the ones where the philosophers and, and even just regular Joe Schmoes would sit around and, and contemplate the nature of the universe and what life means. From, from the greatest to the least, everybody asks those kind of questions. God has answered the philosophical questions with a historical act. You see, it's not just about the abstract discussions and philosophically pursuing truth and hoping for answers. God did something tangible God did something real. God did something visible. God did something historic that answers each and every one of those questions. It puts them all to rest. Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, that is impossible. That's why it takes God to do it. Yes, that is unbelievable because we don't see people coming back from the dead. And to be honest, despite all the excitement about The Walking Dead and all the zombie movies that are so popular, you do not want people coming back from the dead. That would be gross. They would look terrifying and they would smell even worse. You don't want that. But for Jesus, we'll make an exception. Jesus rose from the dead. All of the great philosophical questions have been answered in an historical act. How do we know for certain that Jesus rose from the dead? You see, there's five facts. There's actually a lot more, but we've we got a short time today. we got to keep it simple. Five facts. Dr. Gary Habermas is one of the world's foremost authorities on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Nearly all of his professional life has been devoted to study, to research, and to actively debating those who would argue against Jesus rising from the dead. His life work has included books and hundreds of articles, hundreds of debates and lectures and speeches, In his personal research, he has studied more than 3,400 articles and journal entries in English, French, and German. Yes, he can read and speak all three. And in in, in view of this overwhelming amount, because the subject of Jesus creates a lot of content, Dr. Gary Habermas says, you know, everything comes down to these five points. And even those who choose to disbelieve, those who ch- choose, choose to disbelieve that Jesus rose wrote, for the dead, even those people will agree on these five things because these are historically proven, undoubtable, irrefutable truths, five facts. Number one, Jesus died. It was very popular about a century or two centuries ago to say that Jesus was just a mythic figure from history. He was in no way real. He was just the figment of a group's imagination and they made someone larger than life and they crafted and created him into this Son of God imagery. That view has been completely crushed and eradicated except for the darkest corners of weirdo academia. Even secular Non-Christian scholars will admit, yes, a person named Jesus lived and he preached and he performed wonders of some kind to the hicks in the, in, in the, in the backwoods of, of Galilee. They'll, they'll at least admit that. And then they will admit, yes, this Jesus died. He died by crucifixion a horrific and inhumane method of execution that was done to tens of thousands of humans in history. The Roman armies, as they conquered, would sometimes, for people who were exceptionally difficult to con- conquer, once they conquered the city, they would, they, would, they would use as an object lesson and a way to instill terror, they would line the roads into the city with crosses and crucified corpses. Even in the life of Jesus, crucifixion was a daily reality as he grew up. He would see the crosses on the hills. He would hear the tortured screams of those who were crucified. Jesus even knew that awaited him. They still went to the cross. Crucifixion was such an awful, ugly, inhumane, horrific manner of death that after Jesus Jesus, as one out of tens of thousands who were crucified, a new word was entered into vocabularies in different languages. The word excruciating from the cross. Absolute, unbelievable pain. The tens of thousands of others who were crucified did not garner that kind of response. Jesus did. A new word was created to describe what he went through. Jesus died as the result of charges for blasphemy, defaming God, speaking against the name of God. We see this in the Gospel of John. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, a huge Jewish taboo working on Saturdays, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. A man, a mere man claiming to be God is blasphemy. The penalty for blasphemy is not tolerance. It is not free speech. It is not excused. It is death because it is the highest crime especially a Jew could commit. Jesus died for blasphemy. And after he died, his body was placed in a sealed tomb. Not like our days where we have like either like a crypt or we will have a grave and a gravestone. Many of the, of the tombs at that time, not all, there was, there was various levels of types of graves. But the grave that Jesus was laid in was, was, a, was a cave hewn out of the side of a hill that was pure rock. And as that, that, that tomb was hewed out and the, and the rock was removed, the tomb would then be sealed with a, a stone weighing up to two tons would block the entrance. But Jesus was buried. You see, that's a, that's a simple fact. Jesus died. That is an indisputable, unassailable fact of history. The second fact the disciples of Jesus, those who were his followers, believed they saw the risen Christ. They believed. Now, you may choose to not believe what they saw, but they themselves believed that after seeing Jesus tortured and executed and die and buried, that he was outside of the tomb, alive, talking, walking, speaking with them. They believed that. More of God's sense of humor. The very first witnesses of Jesus being alive after death was not his compadres, were not his bros. They weren't the guys closest to him. They weren't the guys who had traveled the hillside wandering hither and yon, listening to him preach and teach and watching him heal. No, those guys were cowering, scared. They were behind a locked door. It was women. Women who were also disciples of Jesus. They weren't part of the 12. They weren't part of the the inner circle, so to speak. But it was women were the very first ones to see Jesus alive. And at that time in history, the testimony of a woman was not even admissible in a court of law. God says, I'm gonna show you something. When I created male and female in my image, they're both in my image. And yes, it is male and female, male and female alone. And even though women have been oppressed throughout all of human history, There is one moment in time when the treatment of women exponentially increased and the the evolution turned in a very different direction. It was not because of philosophical enlightenment. It was not because of some kind of discovery. It was not because of some brainstorm of some wonderful guru or teacher. It was simply this, Jesus Jesus is the one who changed the trajectory for women on this planet. But at that time, they couldn't appear in a court of law. They could not give testimony. One of the earliest polemics, one of the earliest arguments against Christianity as a belief system was by the Roman philosopher Cicero, or usually pronounced in our Western world Cicero, although the C is a hard, hard sound. He actually listed as one of the arguments against Christianity is that it was founded upon the statements of hysterical women. Therefore, it was null and void from the start. <laughs> hysterical women. But the disciples did believe. They didn't believe those women at first. When the women returned to tell the disciples Jesus was alive, this is how they responded. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Yes, men and women are different. Men and women have very different vocabularies. Men and women process their emotions differently. Men and women tell stories differently. That's plagued humanity from the beginning, entrance of sin, all of that kind of stuff. But this was the first response of Jesus' closest followers, those guys he had entrusted. The women come back and say, oh, Jesus is alive. They're like, oh, whatever. No, man, you guys are you probably, you're probably sleep deprived. You know, you were taking some of those perfumes for the body to kind of get it all arranged and well, maybe inhaled some of it and you're not thinking too clearly, whatever it is, because you're on something, but you're not on earth and it's not real. So they didn't believe And that's recorded in the Bible that the disciples themselves didn't believe. After seeing and hearing and interacting with the risen Jesus, they did believe. Over 40 days, Jesus appeared to them, talked to them, trained them some more. But even after seeing and hearing and in some instances touching Jesus alive after death, some of those very disciples still could not believe their eyes. Some of them still doubted. You see, the the joy and the amazement was was too overwhelming. It was too good to be true. But when they finally went public... Those 12 12 men stood before a crowd of thousands and said, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it, but it happened. We are witnesses of it. And the disciples did not preach, suffer, and die for something they merely believed, They suffered torture and execution, except for one, for something they experienced. Each of the disciples, except for John, suffered torture and execution for their allegiance to the resurrected Jesus. What would take them from a locked room, fearing for their lives, cowering to publicly proclaiming such an unbelievable truth? and suffering the consequences for it. They were arrested, they were beaten, they were threatened. They said, the torture will stop as soon as you stop talking about Jesus. And they said, we cannot stop because we saw him, we heard him. And here's the secret. If he is alive, he came back from death, nothing y'all can do to me is gonna stop this or hurt me. Death has lost its power because Jesus defeated death. So the disciples believed they saw the risen Jesus. Here's where we up the ante a little bit. A man named James, Jesus' skeptical, younger half-brother, believed he was God in the flesh. James believed he was the, the oldest of Jesus' younger siblings. Jesus had at least four younger brothers and at least two, probably more, sisters. That's what the Scriptures say. And at one point in their minist- his ministry, the family members led by James came to take Jesus away to protect him from himself because they thought he was having a delusional break. They staged an intervention And the Apostle John makes it very clear that the brothers of Jesus did not believe he was the son of God. Pretty understandable. Jordan, I'm gonna pick on you just for a second. My son Jordan, I did not prepare him for this. I'll hear about it later after, after service today. I have two sons. Jared lives in Colorado now and I have Jordan. What would Jared have to do to get you to believe he was the son of God? Oh, I mean, he's my son. Michael is like God. I'm not talking about that. Is there any any amount of money? So, I mean, we'd have to kill him, and then he'd have to come back. Oh, okay. (laughs) And Jared, just if you're watching today, he's not coming with us to Colorado, so you're safe. But, but, but no, what would it take for a younger brother to believe that the older brother is the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world? It would be, literally, he came back from the dead, he appeared before him, and he convinced him that he was alive. James not only went from skeptic to believer, but he became a pastor He became one of the primary leaders in the church of Jesus in Jerusalem. And it wasn't just James. One of Jesus' other younger brothers, Jude, became a Christian as well. Both James and Jude write letters to the church, to Christians, to encourage them. They're both included in our New Testament. In the book of James, the younger half-brother of Jesus describes himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. A slave to my brother, Jesus the Christ. And he also uses a reference for Jesus. He calls him the Lord of glory. Which is a Hebrew scriptures descriptive term of God Himself. What else is gonna convince a skeptical younger half brother that you are God? You come back from the dead. Pretty amazing. Next, next fact we have a man named Saul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Saul was a devout Jew. He hated Christians. He considered them blasphemers. He considered them heretics. He considered them completely unreasonable, irresponsible, awful people. And so he was commissioned by the Jewish leaders to arrest and harass and beat and imprison people who believed in Jesus Paul was the primary enforcer. He was the primary persecutor of the church, and he relished it. He finally found his sweet spot. He found his calling from God. Defend the faith against the infidel Christians. Until Jesus spoke to him. Until Jesus knocked him to his knees, Jesus blinded him. Jesus called him and says, You are my chosen instrument you will not no longer persecute me you will preach about me you will proclaim me to your fellow jewish brethren and to the gentiles and because he did that's why we are sitting here today at least all of us with non-jewish ethnicity we're here because saul heard and encountered the risen jesus Paul goes from mercenary, relishing the torturing and the execution of Christians, to a missionary preaching about Jesus, starting new churches, writing most of the New Testament. And then he becomes himself a martyr for the one he formerly persecuted. He willingly suffered. He gave up everything to follow Jesus. He gave up his ethnic identity. He gave up his religious education as a Pharisee, one of the most well-trained Jewish theologians of his day. He gave up his social status and the privilege that went with his education and his status. He gave up his political connections and possible aspirations. He definitely gave up his personal comforts and he endured immense suffering for Jesus. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul had an entire worldview changed. As he grew up as a Jew, everything was about the law. It was about following God's edicts, commands. You follow them. You follow them to the letter. You follow them attentively. Then, therefore, you are a good person, acceptable to God, and without sin but he realized as with all laws you can't follow them and even if you obey the letter of the law you can't follow the spirit of the law and it's a hopeless cycle of despair you can never be a good good enough never live up enough can never get it right enough and then jesus comes along and says it's not about the law it's about my love If you trust in me, if you believe in me, then my righteousness of living perfectly and sinlessly can be transferred to you. But just believe. That's worth giving up everything for. And that's what Paul did. That was the fourth fact. The fifth fact is this. The tomb was empty. The oldest argument against the resurrection was that the disciples stole the body. And if the tomb was not empty, there would have been no reason for this accusation. The tomb was not only sealed, as I said, with this rock, this stone that would have been between one to two tons... There was actually a complement of soldiers there to guard the tomb because there had been the, the rumors that this Jesus might rise from the dead. So the authorities made sure that there was a guard posted. The tomb was sealed. And in some way, somehow, the tomb was opened and the body of Jesus was no longer there. That is the fact. Now, there could be some other excuses, other reasons you come up with. The disciples stole the body. Somebody, A grave robber stole the body just for for a great prank, whatever it is. But the tomb was empty. Now, the disciples, they were not great candidates. They were not militarily trained. They were fishermen and, and a few other occupations. They didn't really have the time in, in, in that short window of time, one weekend, to come up with a master plan of, of going and getting the body from the tomb, circumventing the soldiers. Now, in movies, that works out great, right? Right? We have a special team of highly elite trained soldiers they are gonna go sneak in, they're gonna have an insurgent operation behind enemy lines, and then they, they play the dramatic music and everybody has the big table with the maps and the charts and the stuff they're moving and everybody's you know, loaded up with all their guns and stuff. Great scenes in movies, right? And they do that because it shows like all the planning going into this. That planning takes days, sometimes weeks, to get the details right the disciples had just a few hours to launch an attack against trained soldiers, move the stone, get the body out, and then go suffer for a lie and die. Not a good plan. But the tomb was empty. Even to this day, there is no shrine to Jesus. Abraham, Moses, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad. They're all entombed. They're all dead. They're all buried. Jesus has no memorial at a spot. There is an empty tomb in Israel. They say it was Jesus. and yeah, Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But there's an empty tomb. And there's no shrine to Jesus. Instead, there is the church. The church exists as the witness of Jesus. And there's two sacraments. There's two ordinances within the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They commemorate his death and his resurrection to this day. The life of Jesus continues and is ongoing. All of those five facts come down to this one truth. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, he is Lord. He is master, he is the boss. He is the one in charge. No one else is. I'm not. You're not. No political leader is not. No financial guru is not. No multi billionaire is not. Nobody is. The World Economic Forum is not God. They may think they are, but they're not. Political despots from all the centuries have thought they are God. Some wanted to be worshipped as gods. They're all dead and buried. And the ones who still exist will soon be dead and buried. You see, Jesus alone is Lord. And if he is Lord, nothing else is either. Money, power, prestige, reputation, comfort, convenience, none of that. Pleasure is not Lord. Jesus is because he rose from the dead. Death is the greatest enemy of humanity. And if Jesus was victorious over our greatest enemy, he is the greatest victor. He is the one alone, worthy of allegiance. That is why we worship Jesus. And as a side note on that, we do not believe the Bible, we do not believe the resurrection is true because of the Bible. We believe the Bible because of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus gives the scriptures its authority, its authoritativeness over us the resurrection is what proves everything Jesus said and did let's wrap it up with three realities let's bring it home let's make it real personal great to discuss this in an academic setting in a classroom setting we can we can have those kind of discussions love those discussions but what does it mean for us in day-to-day life it means this through personal faith in the resurrection it means we can be forgiven you see, Jesus did live, he did die on a cross, he did rise from the dead. It's a fact of history. Believing a fact of history does, is not what saves you. Any, any more than believing any other fact of history. There's no saving power in believing a fact. This is where faith comes in. Faith is not believing the historicity of the resurrection. Faith is believing the meaning of the resurrection. That Jesus, as God's son, died for my sins and rose from the dead to give me life. It's that personalization. It's taking what Jesus did and and receiving it for yourself. That's what saving faith is. It's the personalizing. That it's my sins that put Jesus on the cross. It's my sins that caused his death. It is my sins that were taken away. And by Jesus rising from the dead, I too will conquer death. I too will live eternally. I too will be welcomed into God's presence. That's the personalization of it. But it means we can be forgiven. It means we can be cleansed of sin. It means our sins, our secrets, our scars, our sorrows, and our shame are not too much for God. There is, no, there is no hint in the Scriptures of God anywhere saying, I love you, but. I love most of you, but. It's simply this, I love you, and forgiveness is offered. And if God forgives since ultimately all sin is against God regardless of the people involved, if God is the one to whom our debt is owed and he is the one who pays the debt, we are forgiven, clean slate, done deal. Second of all, it means we are made new. We all want a do-over, a second chance a 200th chance, whatever it may be. We all want that. In Jesus, it's possible. Any person who is in Christ, that means is in union with Christ through their faith, through, through repenting towards him, through confessing his lordship, through, through being baptized into Christ. We are united and we're, we're in union with Christ. If we are in Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We are made new. The past is no longer holding power over us. That course we were once on no longer determines our future. We are made new. And then lastly, we have a living hope. Death is no longer the enemy or the end. The life we now live is empowered by the Holy Spirit while eternity awaits a living hope for overcoming the hurts, the heartaches of the past, the disillusionment and the discouragement of the present, the fear of the future. We have a living hope to overcome the setbacks, the sin done to us, the sin we have committed, the diagnoses we have received. We have a living hope that is real and it's tangible. It is not philosophical. It's not abstract. It is not just something we cling to. It is not mere wishful thinking. It is real because Jesus rose from the dead. Historical fact, truth. And there is no hope outside of what Jesus has done for us. I'd like to have Tay and the, the team come back up to lead us as we prepare for a time of communion. As a church family, we celebrate communion every Sunday. Of course, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for Christians. That's the reason we gather. Jesus rose from the dead. Not just on Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday. That's what we celebrate. Sunday is the Lord's Day. It's not the Sabbath, by the way. That's Saturday. But the Lord's Day. That's why we gather. And as Christians gather, we commemorate we we commune with the lord and with one another through the act of communion communion is where we take bread and we take juice and it represents the body of jesus that took our sin on the cross it represents the blood of jesus that was poured out so that sin can be cleansed the soul who sins shall die without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins but as we're in the scriptures the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away human sin Human sin has to be paid for with human blood. That's why Jesus died. And so Christians gather to partake of bread and juice that symbolizes that, remembers his sacrifice, but it also commemorates that he is still alive.